0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sharp China. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line, he somehow survived the blizzard in D.C. last night. Bill Bishop. Bill, how you doing? Good, thank you. I know, it was amazing.
1: I I, I woke up and looked outside and there was actually... dust on the ground i was white
0: yeah we've we've been waiting for snow this winter and we got like an eighth of an inch of snow so that was it was it that much um (laughs) and i
1: I will say it was uh it happened after one o'clock because uh my editorial assistant tashi um (laughs) has uh discovered an ability to climb onto the stove and so has been stealing stuff and somehow stole something that caused some uh, indigestion last night. And he woke me up at 1am oh to go God. outside for an emergency. And so we went outside at one in the morning and it was not snowing.
0: Wow. Well, I'm glad yeah. you guys we were woke able up at six and there the was blizzard. snow on the ground. So yeah. it, was, it was
1: amazing. <laughs> and we, we were lucky. And and uh, it was quite beautiful for folks who aren't in DC. Uh, we used to get snow occasionally. I think this was the most measurable snow we've gotten in what, a, about a year or so. I yeah. mean, it's, and this is probably it for the year. And you know Very what, possible. that's
0: fine with me because I don't have a garage and had to scrape off my car this morning at like 9 a.m. when it was 35 degrees outside. Life and is
1: tough. Life in is those tough.
0: moments, I was I start to wonder, like, should I live on the West Coast? What might that life look like? Um, in any event, you are dealing with a rebound case of COVID. And I feel solidarity with you because I dealt with the same thing. And... Um, Everyone else in my life, they had like three days of symptoms. They said it was really mild, whatever. And so I felt super lame telling people like COVID really stuck with me for like 14 or 15 days. I have no idea what happened. And you're the first person I've known who had a similar experience here. So again, we're remote and you're toughing it out. And I'm I'm right there with you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been 10 days
1: now and it's um it is not fun. So, um apologies in advance if I sound more incoherent than normal and <laughs> and to my um uh to subscribers apologies the, the newsletter this week is a little ragged. Uh, but that is a reflection of uh a general sense of uh just kind of discombobulated fogginess. Yeah, fogginess. Totally.
0: Yeah. It's incredibly annoying. Not a fun way to start 2023, but Uh, We do have a lot of ground to cover today. I will briefly say we've been getting more and more comments from cynicism readers and the questions that people are sending to email at sharpchina.fm. They make these shows a lot more interesting. So thanks to everybody and keep them coming. And the first item on the agenda today is the impending China visit from Anthony Blinken. And I want to start with something you wrote on Cynicism Monday. In the last few days, you wrote, the U.S. has sanctioned a PRC firm for providing satellite imagery to the Wagner Group for its operations in the war in Ukraine, worked out a deal with Japan and the Netherlands for their participation in the semiconductor controls. The Biden administration is no longer approving licenses to export U.S. tech to Huawei, according to a report earlier today from the Financial Times. A U.S. Air Force general wrote a memo in which he said he thinks the U.S. and China will fight a war in 2025, and news has leaked of preparatory work underway for the new Speaker of the House to visit Taiwan, perhaps with the new House Select Committee on China in tow to hold a hearing in Taiwan. And there are still six days before Blinken lands in the PRC. And the reason I start there is because I'm following China news on like a daily basis at this point. So I was familiar with each of those stories, but seeing them all synthesized in one place like that, it really is crazy how tense this relationship is becoming on what's now basically like a weekly basis. Um, and all of that is obviously context for Blinken's trip to Beijing next week. So how are you calibrating your expectations for what next week might look like?
1: So I think, first off, I think it's good he's going. It's an outgrowth or an outcome from the meeting that uh, Biden and Xi Jinping had in, in Bali last, in last year. And, you know, as as difficult as the relationship is, it's important that the, there still continue to be uh, senior level talks. And I mm-hmm. think that certainly the preparations for this trip have involved um, multiple work groups from both sides. Try, you know, so there's been, you know, a lot of back and forth, my understanding, um, which is good to, you know, make sure that both sides are in contact and talking. The the challenge I think is realistically, you know, expectations are, are extremely low and, you know, we should hope that we aren't disappointed because theoretically there are many reasons why that things that there should be ways to work together. And, you know, the, 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 The general sort of most common areas brought up are global public health, climate, macroeconomic issues. You know, Treasury Secretary Yellen met with the outgoing uh, vice premier in charge of the uh, sort of financial matters, Liu He, in Davos a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those are sort of the fallbacks of where the U.S. and China should work together. And yet, even in those areas, there hasn't been a ton done recently. So I I think from the Chinese perspective, you know, the U.S. is talking about, trying to stabilize the relationship, trying to find guardrails, but substantively is really not, um, is doing the opposite, both around Taiwan or around the you know, allies in the region. Um, you know, the, the I think it was the National Security Advisor of India is in DC this week or today. And I think they're, you know, announcing some initiatives that, that I think from Beijing's perspective look clearly like they're targeted at, um, at China, which mm-hmm. I think they are. Um, and so... Expectations should be pretty low and we should hope that they don't get, um, we don't get disappointed, but more importantly, and, and we can, you know, maybe it's sort of further along in discussion, but I think one of the, you know, one of the fundamental issues here is is the, the sort of the core substantive issues that have got the U S you know, from the Trump era, um, even before that, you know, have sort of made the, the sort of shift in the U S perception of China, you know, from the U.S. perspective, things like Taiwan, South China Sea, um, East China Sea, th- those things haven't changed. And the Chinese are not going to change their position. The Chinese are not going to compromise on those. Um, the Chinese position has been all along is effectively the problem is the U.S. relationship. The U.S. is the one who's destroyed the relationship. The U.S. has to get back on the right path. I mean, there was a there was a piece in yesterday's People's Daily where it's it's basically, you know, the, the headline is China, and the U.S., must find the right way to get along. Yeah, And the right way to get along from the Chinese perspective is the U.S. has to stop doing all these things because the U.S. is the problem. I
0: I read it last night. I'll read an excerpt here because Bloomberg summarized it. Um, The U.S. hasn't, quote, let go of its obsession with treating China as a so-called strategic competitor. What the U.S. side should understand is that there is competition in the world at any time, but competition should be to learn from each other, catch up with each other, and make progress together, not quote, if you lose and I win, you die and I live and blind anti-China approaches will not work. Um, And I read that and it's just sort of like beggars belief that they can make that argument because I think China sees it as a competition and has for like 30 years. And I think the change in the relationship is that the US recognizes and admits internally that it is a competition and they have to take this seriously and view it that way as opposed to like a kumbaya globalized trade situation and so it just feels sort of discordant with everything else that china has done over the course of xi's reign
1: oh and, and i think you know the chinese very the, the, the officially the chinese side very much pushes back on the idea that, that it's a competition they you know that that they don't like that that framing um, and you know I think from that piece that bloomberg quoted i had I had a longer excerpt in the um, Tuesday newsletter. I mean the other bit though I think that 's really important is. The bit about Taiwan, the Taiwan province issue. This is I'm reading from People's Daily, so don't send me hate mail about Taiwan province, please. Um, the, the, <laughs> this the is Taiwan, not
0: what Bill Bishop believes. The, the, just for the, the, Taiwan,
1: well, the, the Taiwan province issue is the core of China's core interests, the basis of the political foundation of Sino-U.S. relations and the first insurmountable red line of Sino-U.S. relations. Um, And then it also goes on to say the US should put down its obsession of containing China and take practical actions to implement. And this is what they, you know, came out of the Xi Biden meeting and this sort of messaging between the US and China of not seeking a Cold War, not seeking to oppose China, and not supporting Taiwan province independence. And so I think the U.S. Maybe they can find ways to restart some cooperation on things like global health or macroeconomic policy globally. Maybe there'll be some business deals. I know that folks in the administration were 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 going around asking for input on what kind of um, sort of maybe something could come out like a Boeing, you know, Boeing deal or something, and maybe maybe Boeing will finally sell planes again. Um, but those are look nice, but it isn't going back to the way it was. And so, from a fundamental structural perspective it's really just about how do we, I think a couple of things, how do we stabilize things and avoid going off the cliff into the sort of the the, the situation where everybody loses, which is some sort of a conflict. Mm-hmm. But also it is important, and I think both sides see this, it is important that both sides are signaling to other countries and to the rest of the world that they're trying. Because look in the region, you know, the, the countries in the region do not want a conflict with the U.S. and China. Uh, and 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 the U.S., certainly even with its allies, the U.S. has to be seen to be making a good faith effort to avoid things getting worse. Because if things do get worse in the U.S.-China relationship, it does have a, a pretty deleterious impact potentially on several of our allies. And that then causes lots of problems, including they have, like every country, have domestic po- domestic political issues and mm-hmm. that they have to deal with. And so um, it's important that this meeting happens. You know, one of the things I think the U.S., I assume they're aware of this, uh, soon after... Biden became president. Uh, there was a meeting in Anchorage, Alaska between uh, Secretary State Blinken, Yang Jiechi at the time, and Wang Yi, who was foreign minister. Now Wang Yi has moved up to the Yang, Jie, Yang Jiechi position. Qin Gong, the former ambassador of the U.S., will be at the meeting. He's the foreign minister now. Right. But at that meeting in Anchorage, basically, the, you know, you you have these, open up these meetings, you invite in the press, and you know, the U.S. started out with, with, a, with, with what the Chinese saw as a lecturing tone. And, Yang Jeshu went off on a multi-minute monologue, which which again, I think was was, you know, he wasn't reading from notes. It was very articulate. It sure looked like there's a memorized speech where he was just waiting for the opportunity to sort of lay out, you know, the US is the problem. You can't yeah. talk to us like we're lesser, we're treat us as equals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it played extremely well back in China. Um, now this meeting will be in on the home ground for the Chinese side. And I think the U.S. side has to be careful that they aren't allowing them to set up another sort of situation where it actually turns out you bring in the media and then it gets a long lecture from Wang Yi to Secretary Blinken again about all the bad things and all the problems and why the U.S. is the, mm-hmm. the why the U.S. is the destroyer of the relationship, which is certainly um, again fits with everything they say and will play very well to their domestic audience. But it mm-hmm. will look, it, it will just if it happens again in the U.S., the, the U.S. will kind of look pretty stupid.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know much about the meeting in Anchorage. I look forward to reading about that after we finish here, but I'll put some links in the show notes for people. And from the Chinese perspective, I'm sure that a lot of people look at this and say, okay, so the U.S. has been steadily escalating things and deepening their alliance with Taiwan, knowing that it's a red line for us. And each year it gets a little bit more ridiculous, like dating back to the Trump, the call from the Taiwanese president at the start of the Trump presidency and all this different stuff. And um, I am not sure, like from an objective standpoint, that it's the U.S. who's been escalating things over the last several years, but it does sort of contribute to this devolving cycle where each side is convinced that most of the blame lays at the feet of the other. And um, breaking that cycle is just going to be really difficult going forward. And especially if, if really breaking that cycle hinges on Taiwan. I want to also quote from something that the Secretary of State
1: Lincoln said in an event last week mm-hmm. Um and I'm just going to read it. It's a paragraph. So Secretary Blinken said, on Taiwan, what we've seen over the last few years is, I think, trying to make a decision that it was no longer comfortable with the status quo, a status quo that had prevailed for decades. And we've seen them over the last few years, not the last few months, the last few years, ratchet the pre- up the pressure on Taiwan, military pressure, economic pressure, trying to cut off its ties to countries around the world, to international organizations, um, and from our perspective, that status quo has worked and it's vital to what's important to us, which is maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. So we, what we've said to China is this. They say this is a sovereign issue for us. Our response is this is an interest to the United States and the countries around the world. Because if peace and stability are disrupted across the strait, economic impacts are massive from shipping, computer chips, etc. Sure. And so... That, that's just not a conversation that flies from the Chinese side because it is really a existential, this is our province. We ha- we want to recover it. And, and so it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, And we talked about it last podcast where there was that good peace in foreign affairs, which was basically the best, the, you know, really the, the only sort of way to maintain the peace longer term is to just keep kicking the can down the road.
0: Mm-hmm. The best solution is no solution. Was yeah, there the argument.
1: best solution is try and figure out how to keep the semblance of the current status quo and it's a status quo that was in some ways an artificial construct that that was created to in the negotiations between the US and China for the recognizing each other in the 70s and it worked at a time when when China was weak and really didn't have any real ability to take taiwan back
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know i mean there's so many things that have changed since then and and it's it's an artifact it's a, it's worked but it's an artifact of a different era and this is i think a lot of the Sort of the broader perspective here of so many of these problems is we are in a new era, whether it's Xi's era or whatever we call it. And you know, so much of the U.S.-China relationship was built on a whole, a whole bunch of assumptions on both sides that are increasingly non-operative or increasingly challenged. And and how to find a new baseline or a new basis for that relationship is something that both sides are struggling with. The problem, you know, there are lots of issues with the way the U.S. is approaching it from the Chinese perspective. Though one of the problems has been to sort of hand up it's all your fault right. come back to on the you know come back to the right path and and one of the things that was under discussion when biden was becoming president there was definitely discussion and back channeling with the chinese side and trying to explain to them and i don't i don't know if this is happening with the biden administration but i certainly know people sort of outside of government were having conversations trying to say to the chinese look you want the tariffs to go away you want you want to shift from the sort of some of the 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 trade war bits or the some bits of the trade war from the from the trump administration you have to understand, you have to give something. Your line can't just be the U.S. is wrong, rectify your mistakes, and then we can talk because they're domestic politics. And of course, the, the Chinese side did nothing. And so then the tariffs, basically nothing has effectively changed in the tariffs that President Biden inherited. And so fundamentally, it, it just, I mean, the Chinese and Xi Jinping, I mean, they, they have a pretty clear idea of what they want in terms of, you know, some of the core issues around like, human rights, Taiwan, South China Sea, and, and there isn't really any room for them to compromise. And so then it comes back to, is the U.S. going to compromise? Uh, and if not, then the relationship is just going to get more difficult. And when you see, you know, Japan is very worried about Taiwan. You, you've got allies of the U.S. that don't want a conflict, but also are recalibrating their views towards China. It, it's, it's, a, it's very discordant when the Chinese keep insisting that it's everybody else's fault. Mm-hmm. and and it just doesn't allow a lot of room for uh diplomacy or solutions that actually can solve some of the core issues versus maybe we'll get some trade deals or maybe we'll get some nice new dialogues on global health or climate or something but that's great and you know talking is better than not talking or fighting but th- that's where i think you end up with a the expectations should be pretty low and let's just hope that we at least the, the meeting at least meets those expectations. And again, I apologize for being relatively um, pessimistic about this meeting, but it, it just is. It, 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 it again, we're just we have to be realistic. It's totally talking reasonable. in circles, yeah. and and I think I think part of the problem too is is you know on the U.S. side, and this goes back to what you read at the beginning when I wrote on the Monday newsletter. You know, there's also a I mean, I the mood in D.C. is even darker since the beginning of this year, and I think a lot of it has to do with the you know, not not solely, but it certainly is impacted by the GOP-controlled uh, House of representatives. But there are a lot of things that may be happening coming out of Congress, directly and indirectly, that that um, also may cause problems in the relationship. One is, of course, if Speaker McCarthy decides to go to Taiwan, as as we've discussed. Uh, you know, you've also got a uh, COVID. Origins and Response Committee that's been set up, and and it's going to look at you know it's going to do the it's going to go yeah. after Fauci, and it's going to look at sort of where the where the virus come
0: from. We'll get to and that, that in course, a few minutes. Sure, that's
1: going to of course going to be bring up China, and that's going to drive Beijing nuts. I think. Um, you've also got things like pressure. So so for example, this Huawei stuff. Whether or not the U.S. is is going to be, be no longer approve any licenses for U.S. companies to sell technology to Huawei or potentially even go further and sort of say any technology that has us origin technology can't go to huawei which would be pretty devastating to the company you know a lot of this stems from the fact that congress was congressman uh from i think it's from texas um, mccall who's been very adamant for a long time that the department of commerce and its bis bureau has um not been tough enough on Huawei. And it's been, been too easy with letting lobbyists you know, find loopholes. And it's going to hold hearings. It's going to haul people up, maybe including Secretary of Commerce from Raimondo up to the Hill. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, I think you're seeing the Biden administration, potentially they want to get ahead of the pressure from Congress because they're going to be under pressure in so many areas from Congress now. And this one is a like a relatively easy one to deal with. Right. Sort of throw them, you know, okay, well, fine. We'll, we'll move forward. We'll calm We'll calm this fire down and then we'll have other things we got to deal with.
0: When you look at the political incentives on both sides domestically, I think that's maybe the biggest hurdle in all of this, because there isn't really room even on the American side to compromise at this point because people are trying to get elected in 2024. And, you know, when you lay out the issues here, there's a lot of incriminating behavior uh, from the Chinese that people want to see addressed and then obviously like you explain the incentive the incentives domestically in china like that's not gonna help anybody come to the table and look to sacrifice on some of these core issues and at that point i don't blame you for really managing expectations on the way into a meeting like next week um and I just, I hope that something breaks the cycle, but in the short term, at least, I'm not particularly optimistic about any of that.
1: No, and I think, I mean, it, it it does not look like Xi Jinping is interested in any real sort of substantive structural shifts. I mean, I think he wants, I think, you know, we've talked about it before. We're seeing a bit of a charm offensive in various, from, so for various levels, um, various yeah. parts of the Chinese system. But, but a really, you know, it it is, it, it, until there's, seek truth from facts, until there's evidence that it's more than just sort of a, we've got a lot of problems, we need to buy some time, and we want to get some of these things off our back, to so give us a little breathing space, you, you know, you just, it's, it's a mistake, it's a mistake to sort of dismiss it as no, nothing, nothing potentially positive happening, and it's, it's all lies. It's also makes say, oh
0: my God, look, they're changing, they've seen the light. Would it be a mistake to dream about a prolonged Chinese economy slowdown and that creating economic desperation in some respects that then sort of coerces them into compromise to try to improve some of the economic dynamics that they're dealing with after the past well, few years?
1: Well, I don't I'm sorry, I don't like to, I, I don't I don't want to use the phrasing dream because I think, you know, again, like. A, a prolonged slowdown on China means a lot of pain for a lot of a lot of Chinese people. Which no, and is the not, only reason
0: I say that is because it would be avoiding war in that context yeah. if they're well, compromising as a result. I mean, again, it, it, it's a it's a it's a
1: difficult or a risky bet to make because some you don't know how people react if there's a bad slowdown. Yeah, is, is the answer? Oh, let's do more. Let's compromise on things, or is the answer we're going to find other ways to distract, focus the population. Um, I think that if this were all happening last year, maybe there would have been something pressures for a change in the twenty party of Congress, but there wasn't. A lot of these trends were already in place. She is now, um, you know, we've talked about this. He he he's got all the levels of power um, are filled with people that he has effectively controlled the selection process for, mm-hmm. um, unlike in his previous two terms. And so the internal pressures in the party to force Xi to make a change, I don't think are zero, but it's not as simple as, oh, he's gonna have opposition and therefore he must, you know, make concessions because otherwise he's gonna lose power. I think the the sort of the power dynamics in inside the party have shifted even more in she's favor. And so it, it comes back to, you know, does he think that? Um, he needs to compromise with the U.S., or does yeah. he believe that you know the time and trends are on his side, and that this is you know part of the the sort of the struggle and difficult period they need to go through to achieve the the great rejuvenation re- re- of the Chinese nation, and this is just one of those moments where things are going to be more difficult, and they're going to work through it. And among the ways they work through it, where you know you look at sort of all the different plans they have for economic reforms domestically and investment and building up in technology and building up the military. You know, one of the ways you want to do that is use your diplomatic apparatus to uh, buy time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that goes back to are we, you know, I think we we should be that my default is any sort of slight shift or softening, you know, oh, the wolf warriors are gone, which again, I don't really believe yet, but whatever. Let's just assume for a second that all of a sudden, everyone's going to be saying nicer things. You have to look at that and say, "Okay, that's great. It's better that people are saying nicer things than than being like complete jerks." However, is that a substantive shift or a tactical shift? Is it strategic or yeah. tactical? And and right now, there really is no indication that it's more than anything tactical. And that may that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities to talk and maybe find some deals and find some ways to build back some 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 frameworks or some ways to communicate that again. Maybe buy time for both sides because you know, nothing is ever fixed. And over time, maybe things will change in, on the Chinese side in terms of sort of, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not optimistic they're going to change so long as she's running the show. Yeah. I think
0: that's a, a wise way. And, to frame and you know, it. one of the things
1: you hear from people on the US side is like, oh, well, we shouldn't be so negative because she won't be there forever. The problem, right, is she could easily mm-hmm. be there sure? for another 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then, and then by that point, you know, you'll have the hologram AI, so they'll never go away, right? It'll just be, it'll just be sort of the 3D she, she everywhere for eternity. Be oh
0: boy, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, in terms of breaking the cycle, I think once it's a strategic imperative, there's at least a chance for compromise, and it could be a strategic imperative for either side. But until that happens, again, there are a lot of political imperatives that are going to be obstacles for this. Um, We talked about pessimism. You want to talk about pessimism. General Mike Minahan. uh, Robin says, you'll probably get this from a bunch of people, but I'm curious what you think of the comments from General Mike Minahan predicting an invasion of Taiwan and U.S.-China conflict. I think it was ludicrous. By
1: 2025.
0: Yes, by 2025. And Robin says, I think it was ludicrous that he wrote, quote, I feel in my gut it'll be 2025. But at the same time, I'll bet that's what it really comes down to for nearly anyone making predictions like this. So my question is: How is this likely to be received by China and Taiwan, or how should it be taken by them? Is this the rantings of a jackass (parentheses my best guess) or something to take seriously? What do you think, Bill? So
1: it's an interesting question. I mean, I think you know the general Minahan. You know, he spent a long time in In IndoPaycom, so so um he's someone who is very familiar with the
0: exactly it's not PLA. an army general in texas he, here he
1: he's he is someone who would be very familiar with um what the u.s is seeing around the pla in in the indo-pacific and and its development and i think so you've you've had a series of uh officers throw out dates um it's is different timelines and it looks, it, you know, the, the, the fact that you have multiple very senior officers giving different dates, it looks undisciplined. It looks, um, it, it it is, I think, not constructive to, and I don't think this memo was meant to be public. It showed up on Twitter over the weekend and then
0: hit yeah, the media. Yeah, I, I wonder how pissed off they are internally about it leaking, because it doesn't really serve anyone to have it be made public unless you're trying to no, scare I, I, Congress be, or something. I don't know.
1: And it'll be, but, but I think the, the, the bigger issue is... One, I think it does reflect a, a belief that in, inside the military, the U.S. military at least, that um, the risks of a conflict are pretty pretty significant now. And it also reflects a belief that, um, I think, of real concern about what the U.S. military and intelligence communities are seeing about how uh, large and sophisticated and capable the PLA has gotten. Mm-hmm. and And that, frankly, the U.S., might not win, Um yep. and so so I think that it is it is um you know not I don't think it's constructively public. I don't think it should be just dismissed as the ravings of a jackass. I think it though it is it, it should be a wake up call for everybody on the Chinese side too and for all the allies that, you know, look, this is the risks are, and this is again, why it's important that Lincoln is going to China. I mean, the risks are increasing and there are no, you know, it is, it would be a disaster, you know, and, and you just have to hope that on the Chinese side, at least there still is the belief that it's too hard to use force around Taiwan.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, there are so many different triggers that could escalate things. The McCarthy visit, We talked about him needing to sort of one up what Pelosi did when she visited this past summer. The idea of holding a committee hearing in Taiwan would certainly be that sort of escalation and, frankly, uh, more dramatic an escalation than I was in anticipating, um, with that visit. So we could wait to see whether anything concrete is confirmed over the next few weeks, but that was a crazy note to read. Oh,
1: and, 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 you know,
0: that was, again, it was, it's been an open secret that, 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 there have been discussions. And,
1: you know, frankly, um, I think we talked about it last week. I even heard it from contacts on the Chinese side that they were hearing this was happening. So yeah. somebody somewhere is leaking like crazy. And, um, whether it's March as, as I'd heard, or sometime later, you know, maybe if, you know, there, there, there are some domestic issues like the debt ceiling that the speaker needs to deal with before he goes to Taiwan. But I think that, you know, back to sort of the the reasons to be very worried about us China relations this year is when it comes to Taiwan and D.C., there's clearly a belief that this needs to be sort of put on the hair on fire, get everybody Focused on Taiwan, Mm -hmm. you know, because of what happened in Ukraine, because just, just, and so it's, it's just not going to go away. And so there is this dynamic where, you know, one certainly the 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 Biden administration, not that they've been, you know, they certainly haven't been soft on Taiwan, um, but they even have less ability to sort of shift any approach now that the Republicans control Congress, control the House, but also on the in Congress, there's just going to be an increasing, I think, dynamic where there's going to be more and more declarations of support and bills and you know for Taiwan and it's one of those things it's, it's also it's really you would hope that the goal of this isn't to sort of declare independence for Taiwan but again it's back to make it so that enough countries pay more attention to Taiwan also go to the chinese and say i think like the german chancellor did at the end of last year when he visited basically said, hey, look, this is, you got to understand what a disaster it will be for China and the world if something happens over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Because no, we won't be able, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll completely change major countries' relationships with China. Also, the hope, I think the best case is that there's enough countries that China maybe listens to more than the US, big companies who, who have, you know, China still wants investment and wants, you know, basically say, look, there has to be a way to calm this down and, and keep, status quo and kick it down the road like Deng Xiaoping did so maybe there someday there'll be a resolution that is not involving force I mean this is all again we've talked about this it's it's a it's a terrible situation but the Taiwan stuff the pressure out of DC on Taiwan is I think gonna get pretty intense this year and, well, and yeah that, that is just a driver that even though it's Congress and the Chinese side knows Congress is different than the administration it, it's just gonna it's, it's just gonna make a fundamental shift in the US relationship, I think, basically impossible this
0: year. Mm-hmm. It continues to devolve. And, and the reason this general predicted 2025 is because there's an election in Taiwan in 2024. And obviously, there's the US presidential election yeah. in 2024. So America's going to be pretty distracted with all of that. And I'll read from NBC. They write, the memo, quote, lays out his goals for preparing, including building, quote, a fortified, ready, integrated and agile joint force maneuver team ready to fight and win inside the first island chain. The signed memo is addressed to all air wing commanders in Air Mobility Command and other Air Force operational commanders and orders them to report all major efforts to prepare for the China fight to Minahan by February 28th. And in March, he directs all AMC personnel to quote consider their personal affairs and whether a visit should be scheduled with their servicing base legal office to ensure they are legally ready and prepared. It's all pretty chilly to write to write their wills, basically. Exactly. Like that last yeah. yeah, I mean, seriously, it's it's just really kind of harrowing to read uh, that eight hundred word news brief from NBC News and. When we say avoid war at all costs, obviously war is disastrous for China. It's disastrous for the United States. But it's also disastrous for hundreds of countries that would be thrown into their own domestic problems and the people of the people of Taiwan.
1: Yeah. First first and foremost. Yes. And then it goes back to the argument is the way to get the can to be kicked down the road is to effectively, you know, arm up Taiwan, build up deterrence work with allies so the chinese so that the, the prc knows it's you know too expensive to fight mm-hmm. and that certainly seems to be the argument that is winning the day in dc you have other people you know like the sort of the left in the us who are you know that's the wrong way to approach it uh it, it is an ongoing debate right now though the debate clearly seems to be the, the winning side is about sort of how do we push to arm up faster and get taiwan better prepared and then the question becomes, well, what is that what's what does that reaction cause in, in China? Does it does it and I think this is a question that we don't have the answer for is does that make the PLA think twice and Xi Jinping think twice? Or does do they end up looking at sort of these a much more conservative effort to to make Taiwan into a much harder target and say, okay, that's going to take the next number of years to get there. So it's only going to get harder. So therefore, we should move earlier, mm-hmm. and that is a um, and that, that seems is not... to be
0: the underlying presumption in this memo that was circulated. Is that
1: right? And and you know, quite honestly, and this is something that Congressman Gallagher, who chairs this new China committee, um, he talked about in an interview over the weekend, um, and he's talked about it before. And we've talked about it before. Which is which is basically one of the one of the one of the outco- or one of the impacts of the Ukraine war is um, you know the U.S. is running out of certain types of ammo and weapons. Yeah. Um, and so and so, it actually is a and the FT had a big piece about where the you know you know it's it's like there there's kind of a hole over the next several years where, um, once it turns and if all these plans for Taiwan really start happening, Taiwan then becomes a much harder um, a much harder target. But there's this hole in the next few years where it's actually an easier target, and that's very scary. And I think that the question then and it comes back to you know. Diplomacy, right? And what Blinken's trying to do is there, is there a way to actually kick this down the road so that there's an outcome that works for everybody, or is that increasingly impossible? And then that's, I mean, again, I, I don't. I'm sort of delirious at this point. But well, maybe Blinken if you really is start go over going. There. But if you really start going down the sort of the rabbit hole of looking at Taiwan and the U.S. relationship it gets really worrisome really quickly, especially with the trends over the last couple of years.
0: Exactly. If you're watching it closely, there's not a lot of room for too much optimism, but maybe Blinken will go over there and have the greatest diplomatic 48 hours we've ever seen in American history, the Jordan in the 93 finals of American diplomacy. Um, And the only other thing on the weapons front, Andy, a listener, pointed out that the weapons necessary in Ukraine, where they're running low, aren't necessarily the the weapons that would be necessary in Taiwan. Um, And I would just say that the reason the Ukraine situation is instructive is that they're running low on weapons, and it's really difficult to replace some of the weapons overnight. And um, I think a similar dynamic could certainly happen in Taiwan with some of the other weapons that will be necessary. But I think that's enough in the Taiwan Strait right now. Let's move to the first citation in the podcast's history of the Russian Foreign Ministry. So they announced this week, this year, Russia and China will join efforts to enhance and promote further bilateral relations between the two governments. As you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin has invited Chinese leader Xi Jinping On an official visit this spring, we proceed from the understanding that this will be the central event in the bilateral agenda for 2023. Amid radical changes in the geopolitical situation, our countries have effectively managed to coordinate their foreign policy courses in order to maintain global peace and stability, to settle regional conflicts, to overcome confrontation, and promote a unifying agenda. In cooperation with our counterparts, we have been taking consistent steps toward fighting attempts by the United States to achieve global dominance by promoting the concept of a rules-based order. What do you make of this news, Bill? It comes literally a day after a CCP spokesman called the United States paranoid for claiming to have evidence that Russia and China are cooperating on the war in Ukraine.
1: So when she and Putin had their video chat at the end of the year uh, in late December, I think it came up. So it's not a surprise, this idea that she might go visit Russia this year. The Chinese side have not confirmed, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and in subsequent questioning at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they demurred on answering this question. It is interesting, though, that the Russian foreign ministry decides to put this out just days before Blinken goes. (laughs) Right. Which which, of course, it's on the agenda anyway. But it, it sort of makes you wonder what their. Agenda is it also I think again from the Chinese perspective if she goes to Russia and you know the war is still ongoing and he doesn't go there to basically you know sort of triumphantly broker a peace deal if he just goes there as sort of business as usual then I think that will have a pretty you know potentially pretty significant impact on China's relations with the EU for example which they are back to the what we discussed earlier this idea that they're trying to present a nicer face. If... In the middle of all in this terrible war they you know she goes to moscow meets putin looks happy that's gonna really set back the prc efforts it's, in the yeah, eu it's
0: already in a very delicate place and the there was the visit with olaf schultz and germany and, and, and macron's it, going i think the french president is supposed to go but it's very controversial that there's any even possibility of cooperation like in their countries there's a lot of protests about what's happening and tipping the scales toward russia uh, from she's perspective is probably going to be problematic
1: yeah so i think we we have to just wait and see if this trip actually happens um and if it doesn't then of course that will set off speculation that china is you know she's unhappy with putin right because because the, you know they sort of have set the they've now set the expectation that she's going and so it'll be it again it'll be but i'll just go back to This idea, you know, there's been lots of speculation and, you know, sort of tea leaf reading that she said this or didn't do this or somebody said this. And therefore, you know, maybe they're upset with Russia or they're changing their pro Russia quote quote, unquote neutrality over the war. Again, there's no substantive evidence to that effect. And if you look at the Chinese language official propaganda reports about the war, it's it's still clearly, you know, it's all America's fault. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very much a a pro russia line when they report out what's going on in the in the war
0: yeah the foreign ministry spokesman mao ning said china would never add fuel to the fire the u.s is the one who started the ukraine crisis and the bigger factor fueling it the biggest factor fueling it that is rather than reflecting on its own acts the u.s has been sowing paranoia and pointing fingers at china we reject such groundless blackmail so i mean yeah it's it's Hard because that's another case where it's like it really strains credulity to make that claim in light of some of the other evidence that has emerged over the last year or two. But it'll be very interesting to see whether they go the the that extra step and visit Russia because that would certainly remove all doubt from these conversations.
1: Yeah, un- unless it's some she plays a hero and has a peace deal. But again, I you know we can all fantasize that uh, some way to stop this awful war. Um, but That seems unlikely at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, again, let's hope there's reason to be optimistic about something on this.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see. A couple more questions here. First is David. He says, in a recent episode, you mentioned the 10-year multiple entry visas that remain in limbo. I also found on Cynicism a link to the Chinese government's announcement that, quote, as of January 8th, multi-year multiple entry visas issued before March 26, 2020, are still suspended. No doubt many Cynicism subscribers hold these visas and will appreciate frequent updates on the topic. I head a U.S. manufacturing group with a subsidiary in China, and like many people dealing with China, I've been cut off from operations there. Keep us abreast of any developments. Have there been any developments here, Bill? or What are you hearing from friends?
1: I, I have not. I think um, were, the reopening was so you know relatively sudden and then we have the Chinese New Year, the 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 you know the 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 Spring Festival, Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, I, I think you know the bureaucracy doesn't do anything, for, you know, around Chinese New Year, or Lunar New Year, anyway. So uh, I think now, though, now that it looks like the the worst of the first, at least the exit wave of COVID has passed, everyone's back to work after the week long holiday. I, I would not be surprised, and this is just. A guess on my part, but I would not be surprised to see some more concrete announcements about the the treatment of those existing visas sometime in the next few weeks. Especially mm. as you start seeing more and more direct flights. So, for example, I think the DC the first DC direct flight restarts, I believe, in the first week of March. It's Air China. I don't know when the United flights going to restart. So, from a from a US visa perspective, or I, I, US visa holder perspective, I would guess it'll be. By the end of February, we should have clarity on what they're going to do with the existing visas. You know, one of the things I had heard uh, a few weeks ago, but again, this was nothing official, was that those visas would actually remain valid, but you might have to update some info on the website. Like they ah, sort of in okay. electronically. And we'll see if that's the case. You know, I still have a visa. I think it's, we'll, we'll see. Um, have not heard, but I definitely, as soon as I hear anything, I will put it in the newsletter because it's it's something that I know all of us are very interested in.
0: Okay. Uh, another question from Teddy. He says, Bill and Andrew, I'm a longtime reader of Bill's newsletter, and I love this podcast format. Keep up the good work. I stu- Thank you. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. I started studying Chinese in the US in 2003. And at the time, it felt like we were ahead of a rising wave of interest in Chinese language and culture. I've now been living in Kunming, Yunnan for over 10 years and I've seen and felt the ebb of that wave even pre-pandemic. Aside from the obvious animosity in the media as as China has risen to become an economic competitor, what else do you think is a factor in this downturn? Michael Meyer has speculated about the increased pressure in general on US students which doesn't allow them to focus on something as quote frivolous as you as Chinese language without a career path in mind do you have thoughts and as a follow-up what do you think the unseen consequences of this lack of reciprocal curiosity and understanding might be thanks for your time and p.s if you do end up taking the plunge back into the middle kingdom at some point come visit us in kunming kunming is a great city
1: I, i i i would i think it's a it's a great question and it's a it's I think there are a bunch of different ways to answer it. You know, when I started studying Chinese in 1986, again I'm dating myself. I was two. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> and, and Japanese was the language of study. There were the lines out the door for first year Japanese in college, and Chinese was sort of for you did it. You didn't do it for like business reasons or to make money. Jap- Japan was going to take over the world, and you know if you spoke Japanese, you got a good job out of college. Chinese was more of a you know seems important for other reasons and fascinating language, et cetera. And that I think held for in the in the eighties, into the nineties when the economy started to pick up, and you know, U.S. I'm speaking from a U.S. perspective. U.S. businesses started to invest more in China. Having a Chinese language skill could get you a decent job. You know, going to be a student in China was actually um, it was you know pre-internet, so you didn't have to worry about things like censorship and the Great Firewall. Hmm. Um, had a lot of fun as a student in China in the nineties, um, into the early two thousands. And I think through the 2000s, you know, again, there was a lot of interest in the language because of the career opportunities and the, and the economic opportunities. Those, I think, you know, changed a lot, really. I, mean, I think, if, and I don't have the data in front of me, but I, I know that from talking to other teachers I know and some studies, you know, that just the number of Americans studying Chinese has been on a downslope for, for several years now, not just studying in China, but studying Chinese in the US. And the guesses about why I have to do with the, Job prospects. I think there is an element of truth to what um, Michael Meyer, what he quoted about the kids are under so much pressure that it's like almost a luxury to be able to go study there now, and especially if there isn't a clear economic return. Um, I do think that it is an increasingly um, it, it's it's a difficult it's a more difficult place now in many ways than it was ten years ago in terms of living as a foreigner and as an American. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was there, I first went to China in 1989, and it was not an easy time. And in fact, one of the reasons I think some of the people there liked it was because it was it was it was actually quite challenging in many ways. Um, so it now attracts potentially different kinds of people who are, who are who are just have a, a different agenda for why they're studying Chinese or what they want to do after college. Um, it's a tragedy, though. I mean, I think you know when you look at again, the more we understand about China, the more Chinese can come to the U.S. to study English and learn about the U.S. It doesn't mean. It solves all the problems, but it's a better world when you have those kind of exchanges.
0: And it's so much harder to other people that are on the other side of the world if you've actually like interacted with them and had productive exchanges like in the same vein where talking is better than not talking. If you're Blinken and Wang Yi, it's true for humans in both countries, like non-elected officials like. It really does make a difference when you could sort of be a little bit more familiar and have some sort of common reference points between both sides.
1: Right. And and I think, you know, and, and these these trends were in place before the pandemic. Obviously, that closed all sorts of doors. And now we'll have to see what starts reopening back up in terms of these exchanges now that all the pandemic travel restrictions are lifted one thing a few days ago the, the the prc ministry of education put out a notice that that said that the students who are at overseas universities who who had actually been back in china studying online because of the pandemic you know they now needed to go to schools in person whether it's mm. you know england australia u.s canada wherever and you know a lot of it it matters because if you if you try if you get a degree from overseas and you want to work you know you're a Chinese citizen you go back to China you know you have to make sure you get like it's accredited and they're basically saying we're no longer going to credit things if you did it online and so that means that we'll probably see a lot more of the a, a return of a lot of the PRC students to the U S Australia UK Canada um, whether you start seeing more. American students going back to China for year-long study or semester programs, unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I think you'll see some of the, like the NYU Shanghai, which has a program. Uh, I think you'll see like the, you know, the Schwarzman Scholars, I believe are already there for their year-long program. Lots of other schools had programs and I don't know how those, how quickly those get restarted. My guess would be best probably by, maybe by 24. September. Yeah. But, then, but then the question is, what's the demand? right? what What's the demand at these universities for Chinese language instruction? Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like it's been dropping for a lot of reasons. And it has, you know, it has to do with coverage of China here. It has to do with maybe parents are so like, why would you do that? It looks dangerous and scary. Um, it has to do with, again, I mean, you look at, I mean, my kids are teenagers, right? The idea of my kids, like for them spending a year in China where like the internet Sort of doesn't work from the way they use it, which is not you know, which is all the be real, snap, whatever. Oh
0: wow, we got to get you a be real. We can see you and Tashi every day. Are you on be? Real? Are you on be real? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I don't. My my daily life is too boring for be real. It's just me in my office every day.
1: Yeah, I did. I did start a a a. a t- sorry, Tashi has started a Substack, and it's interesting <laughs> because I I realized that using Chat GPT. That actually Tashi can write newsletters. Oh, so anyway, different. Different discussion. But back to back to the <laughs> Tashi's um, going
0: to put you out of business. That's great. Well,
1: that is my plan. mean, this is my retirement plan. Um, but but back to my point is is it's I'm not joking though. Like like it, it, it the these kids are it's like they are so online, and it is a common complaint you hear from. Kids, they go to China. Oh, the internet doesn't work. It's a pain, whatever. So you deal with it for a while, but it makes it just makes it less attractive, mm-hmm. right? It's just it's just more it's just more friction, and so um,
0: yeah. Well, and that's a case where it does start to feel very alien to be somewhere yeah. where you can't. Access all these different apps and talk to your friends and live the way you've you have learned can. to live for twenty you years. Find
1: the, you find the right VPN and you know you got to shift around the VPNs change. And, well, yeah, when but, I visited China, strict...
0: I got an, a VPN and everything worked out just fine. But these days, you know, it's illegal to have a VPN, and you could get in if trouble. If you're a foreigner, right? they're
1: not they're not going to hassle you. Okay, but,
0: but it's just it's just it's one of
1: those things where it's not it's not like oh they can't access any of this stuff, but it's not easy. It's a bunch of friction and, you know, everything is such, such instant gratification. It's just, it's just, again, it's another, I mean, I, I don't like want to overstate it, but it's definitely something that I don't think should be ignored, but in general, it's like, you know, w- she has remade China in many ways and it, and it is less attractive to a lot of students mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate. And so, a lot of schools are struggling with uh, enrollment numbers for Chinese language and then that starts in high school, our kids, high school has Chinese and the numbers are not, um, it just, it just, you start the pipeline early. And if the pipeline isn't wide early and it doesn't get bigger, it doesn't grow again when you're in college, just by the way, by the time you get through college, or when you're going for to like junior year abroad, it's just, the numbers just get smaller and smaller.
0: Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate because I, it really does sort of contribute to the breakdown and understanding. Um, but, I don't know. It's too dour a note to end on. So two final notes here. First is uh, Drew said, I see that Xiaofeng will be China's new ambassador to Washington, but I thought I heard Bill express the hope that Beijing would go with Hua Chunying. Here's my question. Why? Did I miss something? Was Hua not the worst thing to the now demoted Zhao as far as wolf warrior diplomats go? Her and her printouts, dot, dot, dot. So I try to learn about her printouts and I, I wasn't able to find much information. Um, what do you have for me on that front?
1: So I was being facetious. And I, I guess I thought I had made that fairly clear. Um, I mean, it was it was really not in the car, it's just from her rank in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it would have been quite shocking. But I but I I meant it more because she she she, she would have been entertaining in DC.
0: Um, just because <laughs> A of fun her foil but, for everybody.
1: Right. Just but also, I mean, but also, you know, quite honestly you know i think it would be good for for the prc to have um more f- women female ambassadors in big roles i mean the most i think the the most famous recent one has been Fu Ying, who was in the uk and london and is now um re- retired but it was more like you know fuying would have really just been an been an unending source of Probably entertainment and controversy. If she were here, you know, mm. I mean, she's diplomatic. She could she could be different in as an ambassador versus the sort of wolf warrior spokesperson type. Um, but <clears throat> no, Xi Feng was uh, is a sort of a seems like a safe logical choice. Yeah. But again, and we've talked about this, the choice of ambassador at the end of the day, just like the U- the choice of ambassador for you know the U.S. ambassador to China. It's an important job, but that's not where policy set, and they're not the ones who are going to change the policy, right? The policies are set in you know the u s. China policy is set in the White House, right? in Beijing it's set you know somewhere at Xi's level. you know it's it's not the ambassador has some input, but they're they're an implementer. They're not the policy maker.
0: well, I was researching, and I found out that over the summer, she caused a bit of a stir when she tweeted. Baidu Maps shows that there are 38 Shandong dumpling restaurants and 67 shang noodle restaurants in Taipei. Pallets don't cheat. Taiwan has always been part of China. The long lost <laughs> child will eventually return home. And then there were users that tweeted back at her. This obviously, this was a huge controversy on Twitter. Uh, there are over 100 ramen restaurants in Taipei. So Taiwan is definitely a part of Japan. And then someone else said, Google Maps shows that there are 17 McDonald's, 18 KFCs, 19 Burger Kings, and 19 Starbucks in Beijing. Pallets don't cheat. China has always been part of America. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, long was child will that return was, home.
1: That was one of the yeah, some of her several of her tweets caused some. I mean, they're just, you know, it's like it's like somebody Thinks and with a very narrow view, thinks this is a clever propaganda coup without sort of realizing that they just look
0: ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, final note: you on Twitter a couple days ago wrote, "My mother-in-law has gotten into oh, UFO." God, my wife's, <laughs> wife's going to kill
1: me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's gotten into UFO and alien content on WeChat. She now says she wants to see at least one alien in her lifetime. So we want to buy a not small alien figure we could put outside her window one night. Any suggestions for good ones, preferably with lights? Um, I include that for two reasons. First of all, I think it's a fantastic bucket list edition from your mother-in-law. Yes. We should all be looking to see at least one alien in our lifetimes. And uh, number two... Sharp China now has over ten thousand paying listeners. So if anyone out there wants to send us some suggestions for good replica aliens, yes, that are affordable, I I'm
1: somewhere <laughs> I was found some that were you know I found some statue online that lights up is like fifteen hundred bucks. It's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, this well, morning we we decided maybe we can find some costumes and put our kids in them and just ooh, have them like all right knock on the window one night. No, but it, but it's actually uh, it, you know good for her. But it's also I think it's 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 all comes from WeChat and this is the sort of sort of there's this kind of you know the, the there's sort of a simplistic view that oh the chinese internet is censored and it's you know it's just all propaganda the fact is things like wechat are like are like the wild you know there there's a lot of crazy ah, stuff on there and you know there is a lot of censorship there's a lot of information controls, but there's also stuff that's not sensitive it's just like you know tons and tons of garbage and yes, there's a lot of stuff about aliens not just because of like you know the the three body problem success or this wandering earth two movie that's out and sort of the, the, the sort of love of sci-fi, but just, there's just a lot of UFO stuff out there. Yeah. Like you would see at the, you know, in the old days you'd see at the, the magazine rack at the supermarket here where, you know, every, every, I don't think it was national choir cause they're like almost legit. It was the, the couple of the other magazines where you'd always have like the alien baby or whatever that sort of landed. It's a lot of stuff. And so she just, I think said one day, I'd like to see an alien before I die.
0: Well, I find it refreshing. I, there have yes. been so many conspiracy theories over the last couple years that are genuinely harmful. And this is one yeah. where, like, let's take it back to the days so of if, UFO conspiracy. So if you're <laughs> in
1: D.C. one day, you see a couple aliens in a front yard. Um, <laughs> before you before you call the police, send me an email. It might be, might be Exactly,
0: yeah. And go say hi to Tashi while you're there. Tashi, but,
1: Tashi, Tashi. Maybe we should put Tashi, like, sort of et right put the put the sheet on right it goes straight to the uh if you remember that scene from (laughs) et
0: yeah it could be dangerous though he'll just go up to her and ask for some food so i think going with the kids is probably a a wiser move um commitment to realism Uh, but i have a i have
1: a question for you before we go if it's okay sure um about basketball and your great podcast okay is are there any good prc players in the nba right now
0: Who, i don't think so it seems like uh,
1: the pipeline has kind of dried up.
0: Yeah, it's hard to know what happened there because there was a lot of real momentum with Yao and then e. Yijin Lan. Yeah, but then after that, so, yeah. there, hasn't been, um, there hasn't been the influx that we all predicted about yeah. 20 years ago.
1: And EJN, yeah, I mean, he he played for that team up in Milwaukee. What's that team? They're the, like,
0: like <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah, they're ba- they're barely part of the NBA. Are they? As are far they as I'm are, how, how, yeah. Anyway, no, um,
1: no, but <laughs> but seriously, it's actually uh, if you ever want to do Chinese basketball players, I'd love to hear the podcast because it, it does seem like there was a, you know, Yao Ming and there, and there was a couple other ones where it seemed like it was a big thing and. And obviously the NBA is big in China, and yet the pipeline really th- seems to have dried up. And I, I actually don't know why.
0: Yeah, I I wonder whether the program has been de-emphasized over the last ten or fifteen years. Well, I mean,
1: there's a there's a there's certainly a big local professional league.
0: Um, oh yeah, so, I so, went I mean, to a game. A I went I went to a game in EWU and watched uh, an NBA player named J.R. Smith score like seventy points in a game. And had a great time. So I'm...
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then there's Stefan Marby, right? Who has like a statue for him. Oh, yeah. So successful and um, cool. Well,
0: Well, thank you. Yes. uh, We mentioned Michael Jordan earlier. This is back-to-back episodes where Bill powered through despite COVID symptoms. So back-to-back flu games for Bill and um, hopefully... This is the last of it. I hope you you kind of recover in the next few days.
1: Otherwise, much bigger problems. Yeah, that's right. Thank you.
0: Okay, well, on that note, we are coming back next week and continue to send questions, email at sharpchina.fm. And Bill, I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everybody.